After Obadiah, what we're going to do is we're going to go into a short series on some psalms. We're going to look at some psalms for a few weeks. Uh, when Wayne and I are in India, we're going to have a couple guest speakers. And um, uh, Matt Winquist, Wayne and Cindy's son, is going to speak one Sunday. And then a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Thompson, they live in um, Beloit. And they visited here a few times. Uh, he's going to be uh, preaching the second week. And so they'll both be talking from Psalms as well. Uh, so that's kind of the next series that we're going to launch into. You'll be praying about the upcoming India trip for Wayne and myself. We're working hard on getting all of our materials prepared and um, so grateful for the many people who uh, donated to get those books, the textbooks. We got more than enough and we we're actually able to add a third book. And so the positive of that is that they, these students and pastors in India are going to get a, an extra resource, a really a, a great resource. The downside of it is, is that Wayne and I got to carry it over there <laughs> but, uh, in our luggage, but we'll be able to manage. And uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's a very, very small sacrifice for uh, what, uh, you know, bringing, equipping uh, national pastors. And I've got a real burden for this. Um, I, I remember when, and I'll share this and then we'll launch into the message, but I, I remember when I was studying uh, at Southern, I would go down to my classes for my doctoral work, and I, um, every class I can, I can say without fail as I was driving down to Louisville, I would pray and say, Lord, I know that there's other people, there's other servants of yours in other places of the world that would love to have the opportunity to go get training like I'm getting, and it's just not possible for them. And so I said, God, you've given this to me, and I want to give it to others. And so please, would you open doors and opportunities for me to take whatever I'm learning and give it to other pastors? And God's answering that prayer, and he's put me in a church that supports that and catches that vision. And so I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that there's nothing but positive uh, encouragement about this. And uh, I'm very grateful for that because uh, this isn't just me doing it. Our church is doing this together. And I'm so grateful for that. So praise be to God. And please be praying as we're finishing up the the material for the, the classes. And uh, we're, we're really looking forward to uh, being there. Well, I've already read the text this morning in Obadiah. It's going to be verses 15 through 21. And this is the end of the book, and he's, he's coming to the end of his prophecy here of what's going to happen. And um, uh, we're just going to launch uh, into this and finish this book. But you know what? I, I, let me just pray first and ask God's blessing. Father, I, I, just, I just need you to communicate your word by your spirit and, and for whatever reason you've 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 appointed me to stand here and do that and Lord I, I don't wanna I don't wanna get it wrong. I don't wanna I don't wanna be unclear. I, I wanna be accurate to the text, the scripture. And so I pray that as I communicate that I, I would simply communicate what the text is saying and and teach that and um, and let that be what is helpful to us today. And so, Lord, I, I, I'm just confessing my dependence upon you and asking for us to have a focus and attention and remove distractions from us so we can, we can see what your word has for us and how it can change our lives. And so we're grateful that we can do this now. And we want to give priority to your, to your word because 
Um, your word is, I think what Jeremiah said, is not like a hammer that can just break the rock into pieces. And, and we're told that our hearts are often hard and like stone. And your word can just break that. And we can, we can, we can see what you have for us. And so I pray that, that that's what would happen today. And, and it's only going to be by your spirit. It's not going to be by creative outlines or analogies or illustrations or anything like that. It's going to be by your spirit, and, and we wouldn't have it any other way. So this is what we're confessing. We're asking for you to do what only you can do. In Christ's name, amen. Wouldn't it be great if you could know the future? I mean, if you could have the crystal ball, so to speak, and you can look into the future. I mean, how many, how many times have you been at a, at a time where you've been wanting to make a decision about something, but there's that one piece of data that you just don't have? You're like, man, if I just knew, if I, if, if I knew this, then I would know how to act, okay? Um, and, you know, we, we talk about that. Uh, we talk about wanting to know the future, and some things we just don't know, obviously. But in important matters... In eternal matters, the Bible's pretty clear on what the future holds and what we can expect. And this text in verses 15 through 21 is helpful to us in that. And so if I were to summarize this, I would say here's he, this, this, this question, the question that this text is going to answer for us is what do we need to know about God's plan for the future? Now, if you look at verse 15, it says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Now, that word, that phrase, a day of the Lord is used throughout the prophets to talk about God's upcoming plan primarily of judgment, okay? Joel talks about this. Zephaniah talks about this. I mean, if you were to look at the prophets, you would see, particularly the minor prophets, but it's in both the major and minor prophets, you would see that there's this, this constant coming back to this idea of the day of the Lord, okay? And I don't have time to go through and trace that theme throughout all these books, but I'm just telling you, if you're studying prophetic literature in the Bible, you're going to see that, okay? And it's talking about when God is going to intervene, so to speak. I mean, he's already active, but in our, from our perspective, it seems like intervening. And so it's almost like when he chooses to intervene in history and say, this is what's happening, okay? That's the day of the Lord. When you get to the New Testament, uh, it shifts from the negative idea of judgment into more of a positive spin on it. You, you'll see phrases like, in the day of the Lord, in the day of Christ, or in that day. Uh, Thessalonians, Paul writes about to the Thessalonians. And again, we can kind of trace this. Peter talks about it in his epistles, Second Peter. And I don't have time to kind of go through every one of those texts, but, but I just want to point out there's a shift, okay? And the shift is, is that instead of being primarily about judgment, although there is remnants of that, particularly in the Gospels, but when you see this, this idea of, of the day of the Lord, the day of Christ in the New Testament. It's more about Jesus fulfilling his salvation plan. Okay, it's, it's about how that it's, it's fully realized at that point, if you will. Okay, so when you come to this, this, this verb, verbiage here in verse 15 about the day of the Lord, this is more about when God, he, he has his final intervention now, we're going to see as we go through this that there's some partial fulfillments that have already happened, but um, we're still waiting for the, the, the final culmination of this, okay? And we'll talk about that later on. 
But as I looked at this text, I thought there's a few things about the day of the Lord, four particularly, that I think will be helpful for us to understand, okay? So this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to walk through these four uh, things about the day of the Lord that I think will be helpful to us because then that prepares us for the future, okay? So we're going to read uh, verse 15, and then I, I want to read verse 18, okay? So I'll read verse 15, then drop down to verse 18. It says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As, uh, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. Verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Very quickly, by way of review, when you see Edom and you see Esau in this text, talking about the same group of people, okay? And what had happened was, is Edom or Esau was against uh, Israel and uh, Jacob. Jacob and, uh, and Esau were brothers. Their descendants, Israel and Edom, they were opposed, and I traced that uh, last week, I think, for you, of how all throughout the Old Testament you see this constant battling. What had happened was, is a couple times, one in 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded Jerusalem. Uh, they recovered a little bit, but they were still under Assyrian rule. And then the Babylonians came in in 586 with King um, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, absolutely annihilated him. That's probably what was happening here in Obadiah when Edom saw Babylon coming in to do the final blow to Jerusalem and they were standing aloof. Remember we talked about the sin of passivity last week. Just standing back and just saying, this is good. And they were delighting in their brother's calamity. Okay, we read about that in verses 10 to 14. And this is the context of what's happening here. And so God then is dealing with Edom. Obadiah is given the prophecy saying, Edom, you're going to be judged for this. You were just as bad as the Assyrians and as the Babylonians. You stood aloof and you let this happen. What's happening in our text today is kind of the fleshing out of that, okay? Of what will be expected in the, in, in the final day there, the day of the Lord. The first thing I'd want to point out, though, we see in verse 18, though, is that the day of the Lord is certain. I don't know if you saw it and everything, but it says that the house of Jacob is going to be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and Esau stubble. That's basically talking the comparison and contrast of the blessing of God's covenantal people, that God says, I will bless those who bless you to Israel, Jacob and Joseph. He says, I'll curse those who curse you. This is Edom, and so we see the comparison of what's happening here. So Esau is going to be stubble. The house of Jacob will be fire. That's a symbol of judgment. The house of Joseph of flame, but Esau will be stubble. They shall burn them, consume them. There should be no survivor in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Okay, now I underlined that in my Bible. I said, for the Lord has spoken. When I'm reading that, I'm seeing that that is like Obadiah saying, this is certain. Whatever we're talking about here, it is absolutely going to happen. Consider with me for a minute the power of God's word. What do we know about the power of God's word throughout the Bible? It starts in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, right? And God spoke and it happened, right? I mean, he spoke and the world was created. The power of God's word. When God says something, it happens, we can continue to trace this through. I mean, and we see it even more in terms of, of, I mean, there's plenty of stories in the Old Testament about God saying something and it coming to pass. But then Jesus comes onto the scene and we see that, remember, he spoke one time 
And something miraculous happened. Remember, he was in the storm, and the disciples were trying to row their way through the storm. Remember this? And what happened? Jesus says, peace be still. And the storm ceases. When, when God, when Jesus speaks, things happen. Okay? Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember this story? When, when they come up to him, the soldiers, they're trying to get. This is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. They come up to him, and they're trying to take him by force. And they're like, yeah, are you Jesus? And he says, I am. Okay? The name for God. What happened to these soldiers? They fell down, right? You remember this? I mean, can you imagine they're coming up there? Are you Jesus? I am. Man, I'd love to see that YouTube video, okay? I would love to see that, that, that where the, the power of his word, Jesus turns to I am. Power of God's word. And so when we see when Jesus or when God says something, it is certain, Okay, And we need to understand that because he said a lot of things that we need to pay attention to. But in our context here, he's saying that there's a day coming when judgment's going to happen. And Obadiah ends that section by saying, for the Lord has spoken. When the Lord speaks, it happens. And in order for us to have credibility about if something's going to happen when someone speaks, we need to know something about that person, right? Do they have the ability and do they have the character to keep their word? I mean, if, if, if Travis here were to come to me and be like, hey, Jeremy, I, you know, I, 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 I just made just a little tiny financial mistake. I need some help. I'm like, oh, sure. How much you need? I need 3.5 mil. Okay. All right. I, and I go to Travis and I'm like, yeah, no problem. No problem. Now, I might have the character of wanting to help a brother out, but unfortunately for Travis, I don't have the ability, right? Okay? Or it can be the opposite. Uh, someone may have the means to help, but they don't have the character to follow through on the word. I, I was trying to think of an illustration about this, and I, and I thought you know, many of you remember that earlier this summer, um, my, uh, my father-in-law took us to France, and we had this great trip to France. We still talk about this trip, and we look at pictures, and man, that was just a wonderful trip. Now, when my father-in-law said to us, I want to take you guys to France, Anouk and I, we believed him. And the reason why is because we knew he had the ability to do it, and we also knew that he had the character, that it, he was not going to dangle that in front of us and say, oh, I changed my mind. And so we could just be assured that this was going to happen, and we just have to work out all the details of it. God can't lie, and he has the ability to do anything. So if he says that the day of the Lord is coming, it's best to be ready for it instead of debating it, okay? And so when we see this here, it says the day of the Lord is coming, for the Lord has spoken. The first part about the day of the Lord I want you to understand is that it is certain. It is happening, okay? Whether you want it to or not, this is happening. There's a second part about the day of the Lord I want to draw your attention to, and this is back in verse 15. It says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Now, no doubt, Obadiah when he was thinking this idea of near, he probably assumed that he was going to see this in his lifetime. And no doubt throughout all of history, we, we, we have this idea of that when Jesus comes back, the day of the Lord, as Paul talks about, the day of Jesus Christ, that we think that there are many people throughout history have thought that it was going to be in their time. I remember my grandfather, he, I remember having a conversation with him, and 
He said, oh, Jeremy, Jesus is coming back. He's like, Jesus is coming back. I know he's coming back. And he thought that he would be alive when Jesus came back. He said, how can the world get any worse? That's <laughs> what so my grandfather said. And he died in 96. I remember, you know, he was only about 72 years old when he passed away, but he thought for sure that he was going to see the return of Christ. So when it says, when Obadiah there is saying, the day of the Lord is near, what is he talking about? Did, because Obadiah didn't see the full culmination of that plan, was, was this prophecy wrong? Or my grandfather, was he had wrong faith? Or what, what does he mean by the day of the Lord is near? Well, here in the Bible... When you see something like the day is near, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen tomorrow. What that means is it's a word called it's imminent. Okay, so the day of the Lord is imminent. What that means is that it can happen at any moment. There's, there's nothing else that has to happen in order for this to occur. Okay, so it could be now, it could be next week, it could be in 10 years, but it could happen at any moment. I remember reading of, uh, of a guy, he, he was a pastor, um, one of his books, and his name was James Montgomery Boyce. And some of you may recognize the name, maybe not. He was a Presbyterian pastor, and um, he was talking about this idea of imminency or imminent. And his illustration was this, and I just thought it was really good. He said, you know, you can imagine that if a preacher is preaching and his Bible is kind of hanging off the edge, like this, okay? Now, for most of the sermon, what are people going to be looking at? They're going to be looking at the Bible, right? And the reason why is because they're like, I think that thing's going. It's kind of like when you have uh, lunch or dinner when kids are at the table and the cup is right on the edge, right? All you're doing is like, can you move that? I mean, you're not even listening anymore because it's imminent. I mean, you just know that's going to happen, okay? You just know you don't know when it's going to happen. To press the illustration further, Boyce was saying that he's like, and as the preacher gets preaching, he gets louder and starts hitting the pulpit. I'm not one of those type of preachers, but they're out there. He says he's hitting the pulpit. The people are going to get more anxious about it, right? But if the preacher's kind of just soft and talking and quiet, maybe the anxiety is a little bit less. You see, the, the circumstances around talk about how much something is anticipated or not. And so it is with the day of the Lord coming that as we see calamity, as we see difficulty, as we see the world getting worse and worse, we think surely, as my grandfather said, surely Jesus has to come back. Surely it has to be done. But when we're living a life of ease and more comfortable and we're not thinking about that, we don't think about the day of the Lord. So I thought Boyce's illustration was helpful here to understand this idea of imminency. There's a, there's a quote I came across. It's this. God is almost always late. Okay? It's a quote. God is almost always late. Okay? Um, some guy I read a book from, I don't know, I forgot who it was because I didn't write it down, but I want to give credit somehow, you know? So that's how I came up with giving credit to this unknown scholar. But God is almost always late. Okay, and what does that mean? I mean, he's never late. It's on his timing. But in our perception and how we view God's plan, he's like, come on, God. You know, come on. Are you, you know, we, don't you realize we have this or this to do? Don't you realize whatever? 
and then God enacts his plan. The only reason why I'm bringing this up is that if you study the Bible at all, you will realize that a common narrative, a common theme, a motif, if you will, of the Bible is waiting. It's waiting. God calls for people to wait. And God himself is actually waiting in some ways. And so this idea of waiting until the time is right and we don't always know the reasons for that. I mean, we think of Moses having to wait. We think of Joseph having to wait. We can think of Abraham having to wait. We can think of the disciples in some ways having to wait and a lot of different uh, applications to that. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And we truly are waiting. And the reason why I think God asks us to wait is so that we realize is that he is indeed coming and we can anticipate that. Okay, so as I'm looking at this day of the Lord here, I see that it's near. I see that it is something that we should be anticipating. But before I move on to the third aspect, I just want to make this point that just because God appears to be silent does not mean that he's unaware of what is happening. Okay, just because God appears to be silent or appears not to be progressing his plan, it doesn't mean that he's unaware. 30th president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, um, anyone know his nickname? Silent Cal. Silent Cal. Uh, he was um, uh, uh, known for not speaking a lot. In fact, the story, one story goes that he was at a dinner party and a lady walks up to him and says, Mr. President, I need you to help me out. I've got a bet with my friend over here that I can get you to say at least three words to me. His response, you lose. Now, just because he was silent didn't mean that he wasn't, that doesn't mean that he was unaware of the situation. He knew how to read that situation and he knew how to respond in a brilliant way. But he was quiet. So just because God appears to be delaying that day of the Lord, just because it appears that maybe God isn't doing what he, we think he should be doing, doesn't mean he's unaware of it. And this is what I think Obadiah is saying. He's like, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. It's imminent here. Two more. The day of the Lord is not just certain that it's going to happen because the Lord has spoken. It's not only imminent because it is near, according to Obadiah, but did you notice it says, upon all all the nations. It's universal. The day of the Lord is universal. And this means that there's no one exempt from the day of the Lord. I mean, it's like taxes. On some level, everyone experiences them, okay? And so everyone is, 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 is exposed to this. Everyone will experience the day of the Lord in some way or another. Even those who pass on before he comes back, there's this idea of judgment. There's this idea of what the Bible calls the great white throne or the bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ where we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians. We're going to give an account, okay? And so we're all going to experience this on some level or another. But what Obadiah here is saying, and I think the important point is, is that this isn't just for Edom, this isn't just for the really bad sinners here. This isn't just for the covenantal people of Israel. All the nations, every person is going to experience this. The day of the Lord. Now, this means good news for those who are in the family of God. This is really good news. It means they're going to be vindicated. I mean, look at the text again. It says, as you have done, this is verse 16, 
as you have drunk on my holy mountain, he's talking to Edom there, that they went up to the holy mountain, Mount Zion, and they had a party celebrating the destruction of Jerusalem. So the nation shall drink continually, and they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though it never been. He's like, people are going to drink in celebration of your um, uh, annihilation. But in Mount Zion, verse 17, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. There's restoration. So first there's the desecration in verse 16. There's the restoration in verse 17. We've already looked at verse 18. And then in verses 19 and 20, we see this land, and we see all of this, this land going back. It says in verse 19, those in the Gab shall possess Mount Esau, that's Edom. And those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess, possess Gilead. Now, some of this has already been recognized in a partial way. It's been partially fulfilled what Obadiah was prophesying about. Because there was a restoration. There wasn't a return. There was a return uh, from the exiles. And there was a rebuilding of the walls. And a rebuilding of the temple. You guys remember this now? You remember? Who, who, who did God use to lead this return and rebuilding of the walls and the temple? Who was it? Yep, Nehemiah and Ezra, right? Okay, so when you read Nehemiah and Ezra, this is partly fulfilling what Obadiah was prophesying about here. So there was a, there was a partial of this, and so what had happened was is that when Babylon and Assyria, their, uh, when their land became occupied, or Judah's land became occupied by Babylon and Assyria, it, 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 they became occupied Edom, Philistia, Samaria, and Amnon. That's what verse 19 is 20 is talking about there. So... That's all going back. In some ways or another, it's going back. And so it's partially fulfilled already. They were vindicated. And so this is good news. This idea that, that all nations are going to experience the day of the Lord. They were going to have the blessings that were promised. And, and we were going to cease. And so for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, when the day of the Lord comes, it's really good news. I mean, John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most famous verses in all the scripture, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is fully realized on the day of the Lord. This is fully, I mean, because you and I, if, if we're believers in Christ today, we get some of the benefits now, we get some of the blessings of it now, and we can rejoice a little bit in it. But man, on that day, on the day of the Lord, when we have our full forgiveness of sins and we are in the presence of Christ and we no longer have to worry about the frailties of this life, like I prayed about for June this morning in our pastoral prayer time, and I'm praying about you know, Janine and for Mark and for Jared and for other people who are dealing with physical difficulties, no longer do we have to worry about that and so we're looking forward to that day when the day of the Lord comes it's a wonderful time it's good news if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and we should be looking forward to that day and we should be asking Jesus to return like John at the end of Revelation said even so Lord Jesus come quickly because you realize what John realized there in that moment was that he wasn't here simply for the life of this earth he was here for eternal life and so if we're going to look at this idea of the day of the Lord and we're going to see how it is for all the nations, what we need to do is we need to understand that that means we need to look forward to when Jesus comes back and sets all things right. And that's going to have tremendous impact on how we view this life and tremendous impact on our relationships and what brings us satisfaction and what we're going to fight for and what we're going to spend our time and money and energy on. 
But as much as it's good news for those who are in the family of God, there's another side to this coin. It's bad news for those who don't know Christ. And that's primarily what Obadiah is talking about here. I've often told you that I, I don't like this part, but it has to happen. I don't like the idea of eternal punishment. I don't like the idea of there will be no survivor in the house of Esau, verse 18. I don't like the idea that Esau's house is going to be stubble. I don't like this, but it's true, and it has to happen. Those who are not in the family of God, we can see from verse 18 in the word stubble and the idea of that there will be no survivors, that this is a destruction that is definitive. There's no second chances. When the day of the Lord comes, there's none. Oh, this really is true. Oh, okay. It's done. And so it's so important for us to be ready for that day. It's so important for us to be ready for the day when Jesus comes back and when our life is done is that we are ready for Christ. Because just as I shared with you, John chapter 3 and verse 16, there's a verse in Revelation that's pretty scary to me in verse 20, chapter 20, excuse me, verse 15, it says this, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a sobering verse for me. I, I, I have a hard time getting my mind around that. Um, because this means that there is eternal destruction for people who simply just don't know Christ because they've denied Christ. And so therefore, as we who know Christ, this is the reason why we tell people. Now, we can't save people. We can't change their minds. Our job isn't to do that. Our job is simply to tell people. But this is the reason why we need to be talking to our neighbors. This is the reason why we need to be talking to our coworkers. Because of this verse. Because the day of the Lord is certain, it's imminent, and it's universal. Every person you and I see and come into contact with are going to experience it on one level or another. And if we know the truth, we can't change their minds and it's not our job to do it, as I said. But we should at least tell them, right? We should at least pray for them and try to point them to the truth. Now, I told you this is one of the hardest things for me to work through, this idea of eternal punishment. And I wish I could just kind of cut it out and take it out, but I can't. And here's the reason why. There's a couple reasons why. One is the word of God. It's not Jeremy's word. Okay, so I'm bound by the word. I can't make up my own doctrine. The second thing, reason is, is because if I were to remove this, then I would be attacking the very character of God. Now, how do I, what do I mean by that? Well, there's the fourth aspect and the final aspect of this day of the Lord that I want to discuss with you this morning briefly before we close is that, that it is just, okay? The day of the Lord is just. Look at verse 15 again. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. What, what this really is, this idea of restitution. This is the idea of retribution. And this is a theme that we see all throughout Scripture here. And it started back in Exodus chapter 21 where the famous an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Okay, you'll remember that. 
Now, the reason why that was put in there was so that it would be assured that the punishment met the crime. So if someone happened to steal a horse, then they weren't put to death for it, okay? They had to pay back the horse and pay back, you know, probably some other things that had that for the inconvenience of the guy not having his horse. But if someone killed someone, then the Bible talked about a death penalty there. Okay, And so this idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this is throughout the Bible. Jesus kind of takes a different spin on it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, when he says, as you would have people do to you, you do to them. So he's, he's doing the, the, the same principle, and he's putting a spin on it where he's saying, look, the way you want to be treated, that's how you treat people. Don't let them have the first action. You then treat people the way you think you should be treated, and then we're going to take the same principle, but we're going to reverse it. And then it's, it's interesting, at the end of that verse in Matthew chapter 7, when he talks about this, the golden rule there, he says, for this is the law and the prophets. So he's saying that this is summarizing this whole principle that we're talking about here of as it has been done to you, as it has been done, it shall be done to you. Jesus is turning on his head. Galatians and Paul in Galatians chapter 6, he says, you shall reap what you sow. And so all throughout the scriptures, we see this principle of what we do is given back to us. Okay? And so we see this, and this isn't karma, but this is the idea of you get what you have done, okay? And so there's, there's this idea of, of you can expect that. And so what, what, what Obadiah here is telling Edom, he's saying, you've done great sin against Israel, against God, and so you're going to be, be, be judged for it. And so what, what this does, though, and the reason why I say that I can't take away the eternal punishment is because according to the scriptures and according to God's holiness, I really do deserve eternal punishment. We don't like to admit that. A lot of us academically and intellectually will check that box. But have you ever stopped to think about that? I mean, think, just take a minute right now. Just think, do I deserve eternal punishment? Some of us are wrestling right now because it's hard to wrestle with. But the answer is yes. The answer is yes because we've sinned against the holy God and we violated him and we're born in sin and that he is holy. And, and what this does is, is some people look at, their, the, for the med, to answer that question, they look at how much sin they've done, okay, to answer that question. That's the wrong measurement. That's the wrong metric. You need to look at the person you've sinned against. How holy is that God? How perfect is that God? That then tells you how bad it is. Not the amount of your sin. It's who you've sinned against. And so this is why it's just. So when I look at the day of the Lord coming, this judgment that's coming, it is just. And so, but instead of getting, now, now we, we, we have a couple of options here. One, we can look at this truth and we can think, man, this is terrible. This is a bummer. Thanks for the encouragement, Jeremy. Lunch is going to be fun now, you know. We're a bunch of worthless sinners, according to you. Let's pray. Be dismissed. You know, no. That's not where we end. Because what this does, though, is it shows you how great God's forgiveness really is. And because if we really truly deserve what Edom is getting here, and he's willing to forgive it, it's breathtaking then to consider the forgiveness of God. But in order for us to have forgiveness, 
in order for us to God to maintain his justness. It couldn't be that he would just say, you know, all right, Tony, you, you sinned. We'll just forget about it. That's going to violate God's nature and his character. He can't do that. He has to punish sin because he's holy. So someone has to absorb Tony's punishment. Someone has to absorb your punishment. And that person's Jesus. This is the reason why everything comes back to Jesus. This is the reason why our hope is in Jesus Christ, because he absorbs this. There's a verse in the Bible that's pretty common. I'll put it up on the screen. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. I was just meditating this the other day. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, I love that verse. I have quoted that verse a lot praying. God, I have sinned against you. According to this promise, you, you are faithful. You are just to forgive me of your sins and to cleanse me of all righteousness. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that I can be cleansed. Thank you. And so it's a, it's, it's a beautiful verse. But you know what I never really noticed before? It would, according to the way I typically think about forgiveness and the way I typically talk about God's forgiveness, the verse should really read, if we confess our sins, he is merciful and kind to forgive us our sins. That's the way I talk about it. That's the way I think about it. But that's not what John said. He says he's faithful and just. Now, how is it that a holy God who we see in Obadiah here says, as you have done, it will be done to you? You've known what you've done, and you know according to this, then you deserve that right back at you. So how is it that if that's true, then that can be true? The answer is Jesus stands in your place. Jesus then stands in your place, and he says, I'm absorbing the punishment. God, pour the wrath out, and I'm going to take it for you. I'm going to take it for Rob. I'm going to take it for Wendy. I'm going to take it for you guys. I'm going to take it, and so then God keeps his holiness. God keeps his justness, and so that's why John says, it's not just mercy and kindness that he's forgiven us. It's his justice, and what that also does is that when you sin against God and you have Jesus' blood covering your sins, you can be assured that there's no more wrath for it. Now, how do you know that? Because what was the penalty? What was the punishment? The penalty and the punishment was death. And Jesus went to the grave, right? And he died. And he died this, this, this death that he did not deserve. But he died because he was receiving the punishment from God on our behalf. But then what else happened? Exactly. He rose again. When I see the empty tomb, what that means is that God's wrath is satisfied. If Jesus were still in the tomb, God would still be saying he's paying for us. By his death, he's still paying for your sins. And what if it wasn't enough? What if, what if, what if he says, man, you know, I didn't realize how bad Kim would be, you know? I mean, I didn't realize how much of a sinner she'd be. And so, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to pick on the nicest person that I can think of in the room. But anyway, and so I didn't realize how bad she would be. And so, man, we got, we got, we got to do more punishment on this. The fact that Jesus enters uh, the, the tomb risen and triumphant means done. Wrath is satisfied. And so when we look at this idea of God's, the day of the Lord is coming, the, the punishment that's coming is just. We realize that this should motivate us to worship Jesus and be ready for this day of the Lord. Because unless we are, are covered by Christ, unless we have repented of our sins and asked Christ to forgive us, unless we are, are following him, we receive the punishment. 
But God says you don't have to. Jesus will do it. So the sermon series summarizes this. We talked about this in the, in the different uh, sermons. We talked about how pride leads to war, how pride leads to fanciful living, how pride leads to thinking we know better than God. That was last week in the vengeance. If I were to put it in today's, I'd say pride leads to a final definitive judgment. But the question you've got to ask yourself is who's going to pay for that? Are you going to pay for it? Or is Jesus going to pay for it? Those are the only two options. And so the question I have is simply this. Are you ready for the day of the Lord? Are you ready for Jesus to return? The application point is pretty simple. When we know the future, we can plan for it. And so are we living in the reality of Christ's imminent return? This should, as I said, put things in perspective. And are we rejoicing in the forgiveness of God and living as though we're forgiven because that, then that means the only response to that is service to him, not out of obligation or duty, but out of love and appreciation for what he's done for us. So the day of the Lord is coming. It's certain. It could be any moment. Nothing else has to happen for it to, be, to, to get here. Um, we know it's just. Um, whatever the fourth thing was, I can't remember my, my own point here, um, is universal, every one of us is going to deal with it. Day of the Lord. Let's be ready for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've been able to spend in your word. This has been a great text, a great text for me and my soul to study. I pray that it's been helpful to my friends and my family here, and I ask that we would indeed be ready. And Father, Lord, I pray that we would follow you. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. You know, I'll say this before they start singing. If you're here saying you don't know Christ as your Savior, you, you think, man, I may have to give an account for my own sin. Talk to me afterwards, okay? I'll show you from the Bible how that you can, you can have forgiveness of sins. Wayne would be happy to. Other people around, you may know someone else. But, you know, they would be happy to have that conversation with you. And so don't leave today without being ready for the day of the Lord.